The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters, where we have conversations with a diverse range of wise spiritual teachers and scholars and experts of various kinds uh, who can help you along your own spiritual path. Uh, If you're tuning in for the first time, I recommend you go to the uh, archive of uh, presentations, conversations that have preceded this one. There's probably 30 or so now. Uh, and also to uh, the previous iteration of Spirit Matters, which I hosted with uh, Dennis Ramundi for six or seven years. That archive is still available. All of it is free at uh, spiritmatterstalk.com. Um, today's interview is with no less a wise person than our previous guest. Jamal Rahman is an imam based in Seattle, a popular public speaker on subjects related to Islam, Sufi spirituality, and interfaith relations. He's the co-founder and the Muslim Sufi minister at Interfaith Community Sanctuary, which I'll ask him about, and he teaches at Seattle University and Pacific Lutheran University in Seattle. Since 9-11, Jamal has uh, collaborated with a rabbi and a Christian minister as part of a trio called the Interfaith Amigos. They've toured the country sharing a message of spiritual inclusivity and have been profiled in national media outlets. And Jamal's also an author whose books include Sacred Laughter of the Sufis, Spiritual Gems of Islam, The Fragrance of Faith, and he's the co-author of Finding Peace Through Spiritual Practice, Religion Gone Astray, out of darkness into light, and getting to the heart of interfaith, I left out the subtitles because I want to get right to our conversation. (laughs) Welcome, Jamal. 
Thank you so much. I'm so glad you wisely left out the subtitles. They were given by our publishing houses. And for some reason, for marketing purposes, they made them long. They're very long. I, that's that's the thing now. The last few years, subtitles are longer. They explain more. And I think I think it has to do with getting hits online, using keywords in the subtitles. Uh, yes. It's a new age, Jamal. <laughs> we, uh, we have to adapt to it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you surrender to the wise people in the marketing department. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I always begin with our guests' uh, spiritual origin story, so our listeners have a sense of the the uh, journey you've taken to be where you are today. Now, I know you're originally from Bangladesh. Yes, I assume raised in a Muslim uh, tradition. Uh, tell us about the roots of your spirituality and how it evolved to the work you've come to do. Well, first of all, uh, Brother Field, thank you so much for this invitation. Delighted to be here. As you mentioned, I am a Muslim, but open to the beauty and wisdom of all other traditions. As per the teachings of my parents and other teachers I was sent to, I was told that if you're open to the beauty and wisdom of other traditions, this waters your own Islamic roots, makes you a better Muslim and a more developed human being. So my roots uh, are in Bangladesh. And I have to make mention of my paternal grandparents. My grandfather was a fairly well-known, shall I say, a Sufi Islamic teacher which simply means that they focus on the spirituality of Islam, had a large following in the northern part of Bengal. And my parents were diplomats. Ah. So as a result of which, Phil, I have traveled uh, because of my uh, uh, parents' career to various parts of the world. And my parents were very open-minded and they allowed us very joyously to uh, attend uh, churches, temples, uh, other houses of worship, uh, because they knew that this would water my Islamic roots. Mm -hmm. So that gave me a very wonderful understanding on uh, about the, the length and breadth of uh, Islamic spirituality and the interest of Islam as embodied in the Quran about interfaith, something we can mm -hmm. talk about. Yeah. Um. Listeners of a certain age might remember 1971 when Bangladesh gained its independence yes. from Pakistan, which, which occurred only 20 some odd years after Pakistan was born in the first place, carved out of what had been part of India. Um, and then there was Bangladesh. Were you there at the time? Were you old enough to remember it? Oh, uh, oh, yeah, yes, yes. I was born in 1950. So I was actually a student studying, ah. in, the US, studying in the U.S. And very ah. involved, uh, very involved uh, with state legislators and the, the movement we had to let people know about Bangladesh. So, yes, I remember very clearly uh, those days. And were your, were your parents... Your parents must have been uh, part of the, uh, uh, the the world of what was then East Pakistan, 
Yes. And yeah. and then the transition to independence in Bangladesh. And it was a, a very tragic situation. Most of us in the West knew about it in the, if we followed the news, but mainly because of George Harrison and Ravi Shankar having the concert for Bangladesh. Yes, yes. And also, I might, I might add, John Baez, who uh, was <laughs> a beautiful song for Bangladesh. It's very tragic, you see. Um, it, this is a problem we have the world over. Uh, it's about the human ego, uh, clamoring for power, uh, being greedy. Uh, I would say that most of our problems, our social injustice programs, planetary degradation, is rooted in uh, the, our problem of not being able to raise our consciousness. Mm. So just give you an example. Uh, besides social injustices, the, one of the biggest problems we have is planetary degradation. Mm -hmm. And I love those words of this scientific advisor to President Carter, who said that, you know, for 30 years, he said, I thought the biggest environmental problems are loss of biodiversity, ecosystem collapse, climate change. And that with 30 years of good science, we could solve it. He says, now I've realized the biggest environmental problems are not loss of biodiversity, ecosystem collapse climate change. The biggest environmental problems are selfishness, greed, mm. and apathy, indifference. Mm. Same thing with social justice uh, situations. We are seeing today Israel, Palestine, uh, you know, Ukraine, Russia. It's about the biases, the prejudices we have of the other, and our clamoring for power, for titles. And it's asking us to really do spiritual practices, all of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious, one more thing about your background, or maybe more than one. Um, how did being in the U.S. affect your spiritual path? Uh, you know, growing up in Bangladesh, um, or in East Pakistan, and then Bangladesh, um, it would have been a much more... Uh, homogeneous uh, environment in terms of uh, culture and religion and so forth. How did being in the U.S. influence your, your spirituality? You know, if at all. I first, no, it, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I came to the U.S. in 1970, I remember. And I came to the University of Oregon, Eugene. Then I, mm. my undergraduate, I... Uh, I finished and went, then I went to University of California, Berkeley for my graduate studies. And what's, what really struck me was there was a lot of diversity uh, in cultures, in races, uh, different colored people, uh, and also religions. However, as far as religion is concerned, uh, till 9-11, people were very unaware of the content, you might say, of what those religions represented. Mm -hmm. It was just a good idea to have diversity. But after 9-11, it became that, that's when I became more aware. And I think that's when the United States advanced very rapidly because of necessity to realize that if you really want peace between uh, society in a, in a multicultural society, if you really want harmony in a multi-religious, multicultural society, uh, as Gandhi said, it is a sacred duty of every individual to have an appreciative understanding 
of the other person's religion. Very, very few people knew anything about Islam mm -hmm. before 9-11. But after 9-11, there was a great movement for interfaith dialogue, interfaith understanding. But the same token, I must say, uh, you know, we Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists did not have too much of an idea about Christianity, mm -hmm. which is a majority religion in this country. Right. And if you did, and, uh -huh. and the impression was formed in uh, India or Bangladesh or Pakistan, you would have seen a different Christianity. Right, right. You know, in a sense, after 9-11, it's a water, watershed event. We're all evolving. I remember, uh, Brother Phil, when 9-11 happened, I was an imam at that time, and we all got together just after 9-11 with uh, Christians and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists. Okay, we must have interfaith dialogue to deepen our understanding. Uh, because all the great sages have said, even contemporary ones, like that, you know, if you want peace between nations, there has to be peace between religions. Mm -hmm. And 9-11 was an example of what happens if you don't have that understanding or peace. But what I wanted to say was when we got together to have this indefinite dialogue, we had no idea what to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes we just sat there in silence, which is great. Yeah. But, but Someone once said that's mean? the language of God. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I love, I love Rumi's wonderful insight. Silence is the language of God. Everything else is a poor translation. <laughs> I've heard that attributed to people other than Rumi. So thank you for right? setting, okay, mate. For and, setting and that's the great, record Because it's straight. universal. It's universal. <laughs> so interfaith dialogue, I feel for us, at least in the U.S., it started after 9-11. Hmm. And we, we wrote, we wrote, in fact, we wrote a book about that. Uh, getting to the heart of interfaith. Mm -hmm. I and the Interfaith Amigos, we traveled the country, we listened to the questions people asked, young people, middle-aged people, old people like me. And from that, we realized what, co what comprises, what constitutes an effective inter interfaith dialogue. I want to come back to that. Uh, but before we do, Jamal, um, just for listeners who may not be aware of what Sufism is and how it fits into the larger picture of Islam. Yes. Uh, give us the uh, under the proper understanding. What is Sufism? How does it fit? Wonderful. Thank you for this opportunity. So Islam is a seventh century religion. And there are two main denominations in Islam. Like in, in Christianity, you have Catholics and Protestants. In Islam, we have Sunni and Shia. 85% uh, are Sunnis, 15% are Shia. And if people will say, but what, what is the difference? Why, why is it these two denominations? Well, <laughs> it's, it's rooted in a historical dispute. And because of human nature, it has become you know, fragmented. But the difference is almost negligible uh, from my perspective. When Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he died in 632 CE, the question arose, who would succeed him? Not as a prophet, as a community leader, because that embryonic small Islamic community was consolidating and it was creating sort of the foundation of an Islamic civilization. It needed a community leader. One group said, it's simple. It should be by democratic consensus. Another group said, that's a great idea. But don't forget, we had a prophet in our midst. 
It should be by blood lineage. <laughs> right. The ones who said consensus, they're called Sunnis. There's a majority of Muslims today. Those who said by blood lineage, they're Shia. Now, now what complicates this is in 680 CE, there was this battle of Karbala, where astonishingly, tragically, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad was brutally killed by an opposing Sunni army for the sake of power. And that has created a great wound between Sunni and Shia. But basically, they're both Muslims. Okay. Now, who are the Sufis? The reason I mentioned the denominations is there's a very uh, widespread misunderstanding that Sufism is a denomination mm. within Islam. I've mentioned, I've mentioned Sunni, mm. I mentioned Shia. Oh, Jamal, you're a nice guy. That's because you're a Sufi. You're not a Sunni <laughs> or a Shia. <laughs> uh. But I am actually a Sunni. And Sufism simply means someone who could be a Sunni or a Shia, but who's primarily interested in the spirit of the tradition. Just give you an example. You know, Muslims pray, they have five obligatory prayers. A very conservative Muslim might say, Jamal, if you don't do the five obligatory prayers, you will burn in hell. A Sufi Muslim, which is not a denomination, but mm -hmm. that is written in the spirit of the tradition, will say, Jamal, you know, when you pray, it is as if you're attending a celestial banquet. Mm -hmm. If you don't pray, you're missing out on the feast. You're missing out on the celebration, on the joy of that feast. That is your punishment. Different approach. I always, uh, I knew more about Sufism than I did about mainstream uh, Islam because yeah. I was interested in mysticism as a young man and I came across books on Sufism and, and teachers. And um, I, I learned later, and I'd like you to uh, elaborate on this. Um, there are parts of the Islamic world where Sufis are uh, oppressed or mistreated. And um, how had, did that come to be? And uh, what, what is your, what is your uh, feeling about all that? Sufism has always ex existed in every single Islamic tradition, but in some countries where there is a strong cadre, you might say, of conservative Muslims, there, this soft-hearted approach is not very welcome. Mm -hmm. For example, in Saudi Arabia, uh, as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, in other uh, conservative uh, countries, you know, and they, they, they vary quite a bit. I might say maybe uh, even in Somalia, maybe. Uh, the, the complaint is that is, is this so soft-hearted approach in the eyes of the conservative Muslims that has caused a decline of Islamic civilization. Mm. Because most people don't know, just as today, uh, Christianity is a privileged religion. Mm -hmm. For a thousand years, Islam was a privileged religion. So, for example, you know, the criteria people use, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote 
Bernard Lewis, the late historian who was an expert on religions in Princeton. He said it's very important to know that Islam for a thousand years was a privileged religion. So if you ask questions in those thousand years, who had the largest geographical empire? Who had the strongest economic empire? The largest standing army? Uh, and what Muslims like to believe, a flowering of arts and sciences, uh, wonderful civilization. Who was it? Who was, well, in each case, it was Islam, number one, number one, number one. But today, if you ask in which countries are people the poorest of the poor, mm -hmm. the most illiterate of the illiterate, largest number of war refugees, where are they? Mostly Muslim countries. What happened? Uh, I think most sages would, would agree that it's just the way I said it. Number one, number one, number one, number one. When that arrogance sets in, mm. then the leaders, the rulers, they become close to any possibility of changes, innovations, create creativity. It doesn't matter. We're number one anyhow. We're number one. And that starts a decline. Sufis will say it is the pride, it is the arrogance that caused the decline. Conservative Muslims might say it is a soft-hearted approach mm -hmm. that caused the decline. But so, you, 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 but so, you're seeing a resurgence of Sufism today in Muslim yeah. countries. In Muslim countries, yes, yes, I, that's interesting. Yes, uh, and I, you know, I've been to India many times. The Sufi presence in India is always been a, a beautiful kind of thing and the sufis historically learned from the yogis and the yogis learned from the sufis and um there are beautiful sufi shrines and so forth uh and, and that's another complaint phil that uh some conservative muslims have about sufis uh some sufis are very dedicated to their teachers to these saints the shrines you might say mm. and true or not true the conservative muslims will say you know, this is blasphemy, we call it shirk, that human beings will go and pray devotedly at the shrines of these saints who are human beings. Uh, uh. And you're treating them as if they were God. And this is going to take you away from the worship of that one all-compassionate, all-loving God. So that is another complaint that conservative Muslims have about Sufis. But is there, is, is there also a complaint or a fear that the Sufis, because like you and, and the way you were raised by your parents, felt that uh, exploring other traditions uh, fed your uh, Islam and nourished it, uh, whereas some people, conservative people, would say, stay away from those uh, evil sources because it will corrupt you and take you away <laughs> from the true faith. It could be as a result of the culture, not because of the uh, intrinsic content of the religion, because the Quran says, if Allah wanted, and by the way, many Muslims don't know this, there's a verse in the Quran that says, if Allah wanted, Allah could have made all of you one single community. Mm -hmm. But out of a cosmic design, God chose to create different religions, different cultures, different races, nations and tribes, men and women, for one primary reason. And the reason is you might come to get to know the other on a human level. You might come to get to know the other on a human level. And by the way, this verse about 
God has created diversity so you might come to get to know the other on a human level. This has gone viral after 9-11. Ah. And many Muslims were not aware that this verse even existed uh, in the Quran. And there's another verse in the Quran I want to tell you, Phil. Allah says in the Quran, tongue-in-cheek humor by, of the Quran. Allah says in the Quran, we have created some of you to be a trial for others. <laughs> some of you to be I know those people. <laughs> it was not meant to be easy. <laughs> but it's part of the cosmic design we do this. But you see, this is very inconvenient. Mm. It's much more easy, comfortable to be in your tribe and to feel that you are superior to others. Mm. So when I say, if, I, if a Muslim says, or I guess from, from any religion that, uh, you know, Brother Phil, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I, I respect your religion. But if you, really, if you really listen to me, I mean, really listen to me, you feel you will realize my religion is a little bit better than yours. <laughs> and you see, this is not religion speaking. This is my ego speaking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Has Sufism uh, taken on different flavors and different cultures? Because um, uh -huh. I, I mentioned India, but I'm sure if I were in Istanbul and went right. to you know the Sufis there, there would be a different flavor. So yes. is that the case? And Absolutely. It blends with the culture. And then let's talk about Sufism in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it has taken a very beautiful flavor here, and it has caused a lot of confusion. Mm. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Like, uh, now wait a minute. The, the question I'm always asked is, Jamal, I love Sufism, but do I have to become a Muslim to become mm -hmm. a Sufi? Mm -hmm. So if you ask a Sufi teacher, do you, have to, do you have to become a Muslim to become a Sufi? And the teacher will just smile. We'll, we'll never give a direct answer. They will say it's like this. What is the meaning of a Muslim? Muslim means someone who has surrendered to God. And what has the person surrendered? In the Quran it says, if you look deeply, surrendered the attachment to the ego. So that, as the Quran says, you, you can bring a heart turned in devotion to God. Then the question is asked, but then do I have to become a Muslim? What about, then the person will say, if you've done the work, you are a Muslim. If you're doing the work of surrendering your ego, you're a Muslim. Let me say, then they say, let me give an example. Do you know how Muslims pray? In what direction they pray? They take their prayer rug and they point it in the direction of Mecca. And mm -hmm. where in Mecca? In the direction of that Kaaba. That's the symbolic house of God. You've seen pictures of that, uh, mm -hmm. of the draped in black. They point their prayer rug in the direction of the Kaaba. Now, what happens if you are doing this work of Taming your ego from a commanding master into a personal assistant. You've opened up your heart, purified your heart. Then you're so enlightened, metaphorically, your prayer rug is inside the Kaaba. And once you're inside the Kaaba, 
Does it matter in what direction you point the prayer rug? No. I love that. <laughs> so that's, so it's, so basically you can be, a, so, so some take that to mean you can still be a Sufi and be a Christian, be a Jew, be a Buddhist. So in America, it has evolved into that understanding. It has mm -hmm. taken that flavor. So most of the leaders of Sufism in America for decades have been Jews. Interesting. And they're called Jufis. No. Now really? another word to go along yeah. with, with Jews and Hindus. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, it's a very common word. Now, oh, you're a, you're, you're a, you're a Jufi. <laughs> I know one, actually. I know uh, uh, my wife and I have a friend who was raised Jewish and is now a leader in the uh, Sufi world. Ah. So yeah. that's fascinating. Um, one th more thing about Sufism. Yes. The music associated right. with Sufism and the tradition we think of as dervishes, and I'm sure there's others, uh, it's, it's so magnetic and ecstatic. Um, tell us about the role of, of the arts and especially music in, mm -hmm. in Sufism. You know, um, you mentioned conservative Muslims. Mm -hmm. You say, what is all this music? You know, they're against music. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, for example, that wonderful um, Sufi master said, you know, if God would forbid music, he would surely have forbidden the birds to sing. Mm. To chirp. And there's a beautiful story of Rumi, the 13th century sage Rumi. I'm, I'm a great fan of Rumi. And the, he was doing what you had referred to, zikr. Mm. Zikr means the remembrance of God. Uh, Muslims, non-Muslims, uh, seekers, they get together in a circle and they sing wonderful sacred chants like you do in Hinduism also mm -hmm. together collectively. They sing and sing and sing and they believe that if you keep on singing, remembering God, uh, as, as Sufis say, you'll experience a sweetness. You will experience a sweetness that existed before honey or bee. Mm. You feel the glow of presence is something which stays. But what I wanted to tell you was there's a story where there was a very conservative Muslim in the group doing the zikr, that chanting. And then some of them would get so uh, enthusiastic, feeling ecstatic. They would get up and start whirling. Uh, that, because it's like a prayer. Mm -hmm. So this conservative Muslim said, uh, you know, getting very, very, very annoyed with all this singing and dancing. He said, what is all this? Uh, what is all this singing, singing, singing? He was being critical. What is all this singing, singing, singing uh, to Rumi? And so Rumi said, brother, uh, singing is the sound of the creaking of the doors of paradise. <laughs> singing is the sound of the creaking of the doors of the paradise. And this conservative Muslim said, I hate the sound of creaking. And Rumi <laughs> replied, brother, that's because for you, when you hear the sound of creaking, for you, the doors of paradise are closing. Oh, <laughs> so music is very loved by Sufis. And by the way, in Islamic traditions, music is adored. You've been mm. to India, you know, you, blaring sounds yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of musics and songs from the radios, uh, very much loved. But for conservative Muslims, mm -hmm. it could lead you astray. Yeah. By the way, Phil, one, one thing I want to tell you, you've mentioned India. Most people don't know. If you ask today, 
uh, in which country, which countries of the world uh, are do do the majority of Muslims live in? Second well, is India. Get, yeah, second is India, uh, or getting to be second in India. First one is Indonesia, mm -hmm. and you're right. Second or third is India. We do depending on the on some say Pakistan is second, some ah. say uh, India is second. But what is interesting is the projection is in the next few decades, India is going to be the number one majority Muslim country in a in a as a minority, meaning the majority will yeah. be Hindus. But because there's a large number of Muslims in India. It'll be, it'll be the largest number of Muslims in which country do, do they live? Not in a majority Muslim country, in India. So they're outpacing the birth rate in Indonesia? It could be, or people are converting, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know, in America, the, the, their thinking always was, yes, yeah, the Islam is the fastest growing religion because of the birth rate. They did some, I forget what research, Pew Research uh, polling in America, the largest number of converts, actually, a lot of people are converting to Islam. I'm not saying I advocate that. But what is fascinating from the polling is the largest number of converts in America to Islam are Caucasian women. Oh, how interesting. I find that very fascinating. Ah, that is fascinating. Look, I'm old enough to remember when Muhammad Ali got a lot of grief for... <laughs> <laughs> giving up his slave name and becoming Muhammad Ali. Yes, uh, yes. So things have changed. Speaking of which, uh, Jamal, uh, I want to talk about your involvement with interfaith movement. You and the uh, your three amigos, or your your two amigos, constituting yes. the, the trio. Um, your what you said before about uh, being rooted in Islam and and uh, learning about other traditions and associating with people from other traditions has uh, watered your Islamic roots. Yeah. Uh, my experience has always been uh, a deepening and uh, enrichment of my own path by learning about others. Tell us why that's the case. And what's in it for people, based on your experience, for uh, reaching out beyond the borders of their own tradition? And, you know, we live in such a diverse culture, it's easy to do. What, what, what are the benefits and why? Well, first of all, I, I tell people who are very scared about studying other traditions that this will dilute my attachment to my tradition. Oh, forget it because they, they forget that if it's strongly rooted, how can it be diluted? Anyhow, so they will say, uh, but why, why should I uh, get involved in interfaith? So I say, first of all, number one, don't believe anybody. Be a scientist in mm -hmm. the sense that use your own being as an experiment. See what happens to you if you study the wisdom and beauty of other traditions. I say, I did that for myself. My parents encouraged me. My teachers encouraged me. And I found that, as, I, as, you, as you said, it watered my Islamic roots, uh, made me a better human being. Then I realized that interfaith is not about conversion. It is mm -hmm. about completion, becoming a more developed, human, evolved being. So they will say, what's the, what's the benefit? I'm a Christian. Okay, so uh, I, will, I will do that experiment. Can you give me some another example? So I, I then give the example of uh, 
something that that late Professor Houston Smith said. Mm -hmm. You know that that famous professor of comparative religion. He Who said, wrote like, the introduction to my book? Oh my goodness, you are. <laughs> then that must be a fantastic book, fit, and I mean it sincerely, <laughs> because he uh, he's one of my great heroes. You know, yeah. I would say yeah. the greatest uh, teachers of comparative religions, Houston Smith. So yeah. he said, it's like this, Jabal. He would say to me, to a Muslim, he would say, you as a Muslim can look at the Quran from one angle. You learn from that. But what happens if you look at the same Quran, your Quran, from different angles, from the lens of Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, mm. Christianity, you'll get a more complete picture of your own Quran. It'll give you a deeper, more evolved and more ennobled, enriched understanding experience of the same Quran because you've studied it from different angles. Interesting. And he lived that. Absolutely. You know, he was a Methodist minister besides yep. being a professor. And I, I, I've been told by friends who know him, you know him probably, he did the five obligatory prayers from time to time. Yeah. And, <laughs> and um, he, he used to tell the story about uh, taking his family when he lived in St. Louis as a young professor. Uh, he would take his family to Christmas Eve at the Methodist Church, bring his wife and kids home, and then go to the Vedanta Center to hear about Christmas from the uh, Hindu perspective at, uh, from a Swami. And, yes. and uh, I love that story. But he, you're right. I know he was very much uh, a... Um, I don't know what to say, but a uh, he, he had great respect and his own and in his own uh, life practiced forms of Sufi of uh, Sufism. Oh, yes. um, so, good example. Right, he was a good example. He is rooted in his own tradition, but he felt by studying and experiencing the practices of other traditions, this ennobled and enriched his own tradition. And, and that's been my experience as well. So thank you for encouraging that. Tell us about the Interfaith Sanctuary yes. in Seattle. Seattle's, you know, a very diverse city. It known is. main, you know, it's known for being very secular and 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 all yes. that. But uh, what is it, and how does it? Is it anything like a uh, house of worship, or it actually, it's 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 a church building that we own but i'll backtrack a little bit before we came to interfaith what we call interfaith community sanctuary i and a few close friends we yearn for community so we created what we call a circle of love by the way this is a favorite verse from rumi of mine when rumi says please come out of the circle of time and enter the circle of love so we got together a few friends. I taught classes, development classes, spiritual development classes in our in my home. And then I realized this is the community I'm seeking. And it grew and grew. And uh, very soon in seven years, we used to have regular Sunday services in different people's homes. Some had small homes, some had medium homes, some had large homes. We had classes, services, retreats, programs, and it grew to a large number. And then we felt we need a center. You know, we didn't have the experience, nor the money, but we knew how to pray. And we prayed and prayed. And guess what, Phil? Uh, it's a long story, but this church building, the oldest in our area here, not that old, but 
by our standards, very old in Seattle, 1890, 1890. It was given to us for free. Mm. It was given to us. So our knees are scraped with gratitude that we suddenly became in 1998 or 1999 in possession of this beautiful historic building which we renamed Interfaith Community Sanctuary. And they gave it to us on one condition. They said, we love your philosophy, your love for different traditions. Just as we're giving it to you, if you cannot manage it, please don't sell it. Just give it away to somebody else. Mm. So that, that has become our home. And there we foster a living, breathing interfaith community. Our motto is interfaith, as I mentioned, is not about conversion. It's about completion. Come and experience that. So since 1998, we've been there. We own that building and we have evolved into what it means to not just talk about interfaith, but to live interfaith. We have Muslims, we have Jews, Christians, Buddhists, uh, Hindus, uh, and a, lot, a good number are the, the fastest growing movement in America. Spiritual, but not religious. Oh, yes. <laughs> and Phil, what, it's a small place, but because of our interfaith congregation, because of our involvement, what it means to have services that are interfaith, uh, any interfaith activity in our area here, we are either initiating it or participating in it. Mm. So just yesterday, for example, we had our 37th annual interspiritual Thanksgiving program. Ah. Next year, we'll have an annual interspiritual summit. We are very involved in that. And this yesterday was Thanksgiving, but we talked about the elephant in the room. It was really about the Israeli Palestinian situation. I spoke, a rabbi spoke, a Christian pastor spoke. We had music, we had dances, we had celebration, we had conversations. Uh, and we said, so that was that was our Thanksgiving program. Well, now that you've mentioned it. Yes. Um, listeners, we're recording this on November 20th, 2023. Uh, war has been raging in the Middle East for over a month, uh, once again, and throughout the world, including the U.S., Islamophobia and anti-Semitism have erupted in quite alarming ways and dangerous ways. Uh, people are separating into tribes. Everybody seems, you know, thinks you should have a strong opinion and that that strong opinion uh, should be on one side or the other, uh, and um, people are angry and upset. What have you learned, Jamal? Uh, what would you like us to know? And, and how do you think we should uh, react to and uh, frame and understand what's going on there thank you it's a, it's a very great question there's something we tackled uh, we spoke about uh, in great length uh, yesterday the first thing is we said that you know it's really again a, a question of human nature our ego our tribal affiliations let's speak the truth so in the presence of the of my jewish brothers and sisters christians and people from different religions i said uh, let me as a muslim 
be as honest as I can, as close to what the Quran mandates, to speak the truth, to talk about justice, about compassion, love. So let's speak the truth. Hamas killing innocent people is immoral, unacceptable. And I can give a lot of Quranic quotations. For example, I said, you know, the Quran says, if you kill one innocent people, it is as if you're killing all of humanity. It's the mm. same in Midrash, in the Jewish tradition. But we can't stop there. The bombing in Gaza, killing so many innocent people and so many children and women and men, of course, um, is immoral, unacceptable. And we can't stop there. The occupation for decades is immoral, unacceptable. Let's speak the truth about that. But you talk about, let's talk, let's talk about the elephant in the room in a way that reflects our truth. I said, this is, this is my truth. Uh, number two, let's not surrender our humanity. And I'm taking my cue from a wonderful article that Valerie Kaur wrote, that Sikh activist. Hmm. She said, what can I do in the face of this Arab-Israeli conflict? The most important thing I can do, and this resonates for me as a Muslim, she says, I refuse to surrender my humanity. I have to grieve over their children as my own. And of all the articles I've read, I love the one by uh, Nicholas Kristof. But mm. you know, if your moral compass is attuned to the suffering of one side only, then your moral compass is broken. So is your humanity. Mm -hmm. So now what can I do? <laughs> to help the situation. I said, you know, there are so many grassroots level organizations that have really, without any attachment to prizes or fame, relentlessly doing the work of creating peace between these cousins. You know, I'm a Muslim. Uh, I tell to a Jewish brother, sister, or to a Christian one, we are, you know, we're cousins of the same Abrahamic family but a very, 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 very dysfunctional Abrahamic family. <laughs> Let's go on the side of those who are working to bring them together. For example, I've been to Israel-Palestine twice. What, what splashed in my chest was the organization, for example, of Israeli parents whose children have been killed by Palestinians, connecting with, meeting with, embracing Palestinian parents whose children have been killed by Israelis. When they talk, when, when they're willing to be vulnerable, they embrace, embrace each other. And when they cry, their tears are the seeds for peace. And you might say, again, big deal. You know, Rumi has a verse who says, the ocean takes care of every wave till it reaches the shore. And when the waves they collect together, those collective waves can wash away continents. When these grassroots organizations get together, they can create miracles. In our lifetime, Phil, what have we seen? The Berlin Wall has come down. Communism was dissolved. Apartheid was dismantled. An African-American was elected twice to the White House. How did this happen? If, if you go deep inside, there were these grassroots level organizations that mm -hmm. have been working relentlessly that has manifested in this miracle it's bound to happen also with israeli-palestinian uh, uh, conflict last thing i want to say was there was uh, several people who stood up and said and what i remember particularly a rabbi who said you know i'll tell you the solution 
we've got to let the women from the Israeli side and then from the Palestinian side be our leaders. That is going to solve the situation. That we are missing out on the divine feminine energy. And everybody clapped saying, that is the solution, we think. <laughs> How do you think that will go over in Israel and uh, in Gaza among the leadership? You know, Brother Phil, I would say people are, <laughs> people are going to say we have tried everything. Mm. Let's try this also. And we know from history of centuries, centuries ago, when the divine feminine was really... Uh, I don't want to say dominant, but I want to say it was strong. There was a lot of peace. So I think uh, <laughs> maybe the best thing is, uh, Brother Phil, that we work on ourselves to become more complete and developed as human beings, which means also we balance our male and female energies. Is that why you now have a female rabbi in the uh, Amigos? <laughs> you know, Phil, for, for years we've been criticized. You know, you, the Interfaith Amigos, you don't have that female energy. We said, you know, we didn't plan it this way. It just ha happened. We would love to have the female uh, divine energy. You're right. So we are so lucky with the blessing of Rabbi Ted Falcon, who has retired. With his blessing, we now have a female rabbi. And Phil, we are excited about that. Very good. I look forward to seeing you uh, perform in, uh, you'll have a different <laughs> different flavor now. That's right. That's um, right. <laughs> let's, all right, we've already changed the pace a little bit from the, the, the tragedies of uh, tribalism and um, exclusive uh, interpretations of religious traditions. The we mentioned, I mentioned earlier, the music of Sufism. Yes. There's also the humor. Right. So yes. You, you have a book titled The Sacred Laughter of the Sufis, yes. Awakening the Soul with the Mullah's Comic Teaching Stories and Other Islamic Wisdom. I remember running into, and when, you know, I was reading uh, all kinds of books about different mystical traditions, the, the stories of Nasruddin. Yes, <laughs> and 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 they were they're so clever and so wonderful, but always there's always a teaching in them. Right. So, in the few minutes we have, uh, yeah. enlighten us, yeah. <laughs> with the role of humor, yes, and how it manifests in Sufism, and uh, uh, maybe give us some examples. You know. Uh... Brother Phil, the Sufis will say, we have no idea where we have come from, what we're doing here, and where we are going. Uh, we can cry and cry about it because nothing will give us the insight. <laughs> the Quran says, that is hidden from you. It is by design. We can cry or we can laugh. Sufis say, we choose to laugh. So that 14th century sage Hafez says, what is this? love and laughter bubbling up from within me. He said, listen to my answer. It's the sound of a soul waking up. Mm. And Hafiz says, you know, God wants to see more laughter, more playfulness in your eyes, because that is your greatest witness to God. So I would love to share 
at least one story that is, that is, that is our favorite of the Interfaith Amigos. We probably said it a few hundred times in our <laughs> presentations. The Mullah Nasuddin, you mentioned that fictional character through whom many truths are conveyed. The Mullah goes to work, opens his lunch pail box. What does he find? A cheese sandwich. Second day, third day, fourth day, I'm getting sick and tired of this lousy cheese sandwich. On the 10th day, I'm really getting sick and tired of this lousy cheese sandwich. So his puzzled co-workers say, Mullah, why don't you ask your wife, be persuasive. Ask her to make a different kind of sandwich. I'm not married. Who makes them? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so this is about, you know, the, the patterns we are stuck in. You're blaming the outside circumstances, this situation, that situation, forgetting that I myself, I'm, I'm contributing to that. And I have got to look within and others, otherwise it will not change. Maybe uh, another insight I'll give you from Rumi in this instance. You know, Brother Phil, you and I are of the age where we start thinking about what's going to happen. In, by, maybe inshallah, meaning by will of God, grace of God, we'll, we'll live long lives. But you know, <laughs> as Rumi says, Jamal, here you are, so scared, you'll go into non-existence. But if the truth be known, non-existence is trembling in fear it might be given human shape if only we knew mm. and then and then the another one that is also in the hindu tradition the islamic tradition we have the same insight jamal when you go over to the other side and you look back at your life at all your dramas and melodramas you will laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh the sages say, why wait? Why don't you laugh right now? So it's incumbent on us to laugh right now. And that is a sound of a soul waking up. I remember reading, and maybe you correct me if my memory is wrong, but I remember when I was reading some of the tales of Nasruddin and these wonderful anecdotes of teaching stories, I believe that was the first time I heard what I've now seen appropriated in many different places. The story of looking for the key. Ah, yes, yes. Am I right that that was a Nasruddin? That's a Mullah Nasruddin story. Please. But some, some say, Islamic sages say, that actually was a real life occurrence in the time of the beloved female saint named Rabia. Ah. Because she was so eager to impart this teaching, and this was in Iraq, that she was she tried very hard, but it was it didn't like Rumi say it didn't splash in people's hearts till she was one day looking for that lost key under the pillar which had a light because in those days no electricity, but pillars had big lights, torches, and she's looking for a lost key. The entire village or town joins her. They cannot find the lost key finally so finally they ask her to better focus our search can you please tell us whereabouts in what direction you might have lost the key and then she says actually i did not lose the key here i lost the key miles away in my house over there and the puzzled townspeople say if you lost the house in your key you lost the key in your house why are you looking for it here she says simple my house has no light at all, but there's so much more light out here. They all laugh. 
Then she's, this is, now comes the teaching. She says, you have left, which tells me you're intelligent people. Now you tell me, when you have lost your happiness, your contentment, your peace of mind, because of a failed relationship out there, or some plan, some plan which did not transpire out there, and you work so hard to fix that, that's important. But did you lose it out there? You actually lost it inside of you. But it's so much more dim inside of you, so much more inconvenient to look for it inside there. But that's where you have to look. And that insight has gone around the world. <laughs> it has. I've seen it in, in many different contexts. Of course, no one knows the uh, credits of source because they yeah, don't know. It's, you know, in Islam, Phil, it's called, it's called Qibla. You know, Qibla is an Islamic word uh, meaning direction. So every mosque has a particular area that, which is called, uh, which signifies this is the direction of Mecca. Mm. To, so plant your face in that direction. So mm. almost they turn in the direction of the Qibla. So this story is Qibla in finding solutions to your problem. Look in the right direction. Yes, look for it outside situation that has created this problem. That's important. But the more important Qibla is inside you, where you lost your peace of mind, mm. your happiness. That's the real Qibla, the real direction I need to, I need to focus my attention in. I love that. Um, and I've never heard the word Qibla before. Where did you spell it? K -I yeah, Q, yeah, yeah, K or Q-I-B-L-A, Qibla. Qibla. Looking for things in the right direction. My Jewish grandmother would say that sounds like a pastry. <laughs> I'll have the I'll have a piece of kibla with my coffee. That's right. In fact, you can write a book on it. You write so beautifully, uh, Phil, about <laughs> making this inner inconvenient work pastry-like sweetness. <laughs> I, I love it. All right, uh, uh, Jamal. We don't have much time in the yes. in the minute or two we have left. Um, what would you like to uh, impart to our listeners uh, as a takeaway? Um, we have Thanksgiving. Well, this will air after Thanksgiving, but we're at a perilous place in the world and people are yes. struggling with their own inner, with their Qibla. And, yes. and uh, what would you like us to uh, I'm good. take away? You mentioned gratitude, uh, Brother Phil. Let me end with a mullah story about gratitude. and ah, the, right. the mullah has lost his donkey. That's a big deal in that part of the world source of livelihood, a friend. The entire village tries to find that donkey, but the donkey is lost forever. They come in the evening to give Mullah the bad news that the donkey is lost forever. And where's the Mullah? He's in the town square on his knees saying, Allah, thank you, thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Mullah, you haven't heard the bad news. Your donkey is lost forever. Mullah says, I know, I know, I know. Uh, but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful because imagine what could have happened to me if i was on the donkey <laughs> and the and the insight is may we particularly in times of affliction difficulties continue to give thanks because if we do we are giving thanks for unknown blessings already on their way we're giving thanks for un 
unknown blessings already on their way. So this is in every tradition, certainly in Islam and very strong in Sufism. With every breath may express gratitude, particularly in times of difficulties. Thank you, Jamal. Uh, listeners, um, you can learn more about Jamal at jamalrahman.com and his uh, uh, interfaith sanctuary. At yes, you know what happened? Because uh, we, have a, we have a new rabbi, we are revamping our Interfaith Amigos website. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so look for that. that. They'll come into place very soon. Look for that and look for interfaithcommunitysanctuary.org. All this will be posted or by the time you hear it is posted on the uh, Spirit Matters website. And um, Jamal, thanks again for being with us and give us, us your wisdom. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Uh, email me with suggestions. Uh, go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. Uh, get on my mailing list and um, tell your friends about the podcast too. And Jamal, many thanks again. Keep up the good work. And uh, well, thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Brother Phil. Thank you for the work you're doing and for this beautiful invitation. I am very grateful to you. Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.